0: Father in heaven, we are thankful for life and health and a portion of strength. We are grateful for uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit here at Camp Meeting, up and down the uh, various corridors of the dormitories and the roadways and uh, through people's tents and trailers. We pray that your spirit will continue to move in a very mighty way here with us today. We ask for clarity of thought, and we pray that what is shared might be clearly understood and applied as well. We thank you in advance for hearing and answering these humble requests. For we ask them in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Oh, so, um, go ahead.
1: We've been talking about flight plan, right? And uh, as we discussed yesterday, nobody really likes connecting flights, right? Nobody likes to go east when you really want to be in west, right? So it can be kind of a hassle. Um, oh, sorry. Hi. Okay. So, um, but the, the main objective is that we know that when dealing with flight plans in our everyday lives, that um, every relationship that God has us in cooperation with is meant to be in an ideal world for our benefit, Right. But um, there are times when we have relationships that aren't necessarily the most ideal, right? Whether it's from childhood or from our own personal interactions with um, a relationship that we've had with opposite sex or different things like that. So um, this was not always um, in the sense of marriage, but a principle in general is that all those relationships were meant to be good. Uh, Man in connection is better than man on his or her own. Honestly, most of our relationships are the most painful parts of our lives. That's interesting, right? And it says here that the father who deserts his family, the mother who abandons his ch- her children, the siblings who live in the same city but don't even talk to each other, right? The boyfriend or girlfriend that we've broken up with, the parents who are there um, probably only physically but not really emotionally or spiritually, the church even, which was... Um, which has no place for me. Sometimes we feel that way, right? On and on, if we're honest with ourselves, um, sometimes relationships seem to be complicated or complicate our lives and make them worse, not better. But why is that? Since God said it is not good that man should be alone, doesn't that mean that relationships with family and friends, etc., should be good? I mean, wouldn't it be easier um, just to have relationships with God? Now, I don't know about you, but there are times I felt like that in my life, like, okay, it's just gonna be me and God. I don't need anybody else, correct? But it doesn't always work out that way. Um, if we only had a relationship with God, we feel like we would never experience hurt or pain. But um, what we want to do tonight is we want to rethink why God gave us so many different type of, types of connections and experiences with relationships.
0: Uh, we want to read a couple of passages to you in the Bible that emphasize the importance of connections. The first one is Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so a person sharpens his friend. As iron sharpens iron, so a person sharpens his friend. And these are taken from the New English translation. The next one is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. And it reads, a man who is all alone with no companion. He has no children, nor siblings, yet there is no end to all his toil and he is never satisfied. He is never satisfied with riches.
1: He laments, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is futile and a burdensome task. Two people are better than one because they can reap, next slide, more benefits from their labor. For if if they fall, one will help his companion up, but pity the person who falls down and has no one to help him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they can keep each other warm, but how can one person keep warm by himself? Although an assailant may overpower one person, two can withstand him. Moreover, a three-strand cord is not easily broken.
0: All right, so the Bible emphasizes first, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his friend. And now the Bible again emphasizes this concept that the more we are in relationship with people, the better off we are, the further ahead we can, we can get. Now in Luke chapter six, now this would this would be great if it only referred to positive relationships because uh, I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb and suggest that everybody has had good relationships and bad relationships, good friendships, bad friendships. So if life only consisted of good relationships and good friendships as Tamara mentioned earlier, if we only had a relationship with God, how ideal would that be? Then uh, it would seem that we would be further along. But the Bible seems to introduce the concept that not only positive relationships, uh, not only do positive relationships have the, the um, potential to influence us towards good, but also our negative relationships as well. In Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36, listen to what Jesus says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to be repaid, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners so that they may be repaid in full. But, oh, come on now, you can read that. But what? But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So in essence, Jesus says, if you love people who love you, I mean, big deal. Anybody can do that. I mean, dogs can love their masters who feed them, right? So uh, the real challenge uh, when it comes to being um, a mature Christian, and I like that word, the real challenge when it comes to being a mature Christian is your ability to love and be kind and do good even to those who are not kind or loving or good to us. So we are going to try to take another step and delve a little bit into the benefit of loving your enemies. And uh, let me try to help put this in context. On yesterday, we talked about um, beginnings, how, uh, how affected we are based on the uh, prenatal, uh, in utero experiences that we have, and then our upbringing, our childhood, so forth and so on, um, <clears throat> how all of those things affect us. And uh, we talked about the importance of the new birth because of that. God says, listen, I've known you from before you came forth out of your mother's womb, and I know all, uh, all about your baggage, and so I want to press restart on your life. I want you to experience a new birth. I want you to be born again. But when we are born again, when we experience a new birth, and even prior to that, what we want to emphasize today is that God can use not only our good relationships, but also our raggedy and rugged relationships to help us to become more like him. So um, we want to, we want to show you another video. All right, and hopefully this one will um, this one will help. Michael, can you turn up the, uh, the sound where it says "computer? It has two blue buttons, computer? Oh wait a minute. Ephesians 2:10. Uh, okay, there we go. We're
2: God's workmanship, His masterpiece. Ephesians 2:10 says that we're God's workmanship, His masterpiece. I don't know about you. But when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't really see a, a masterpiece, you know? I mean, maybe a Picasso. It's like, fuck. <laughs> but I want to be his masterpiece. I want to be everything he created me to be. And so I go to him in prayer, and I say, Dear Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your Son. Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I
3: pray, amen. Hi. Whoa, who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. You're not God. No, I am. You said the prayer. That's how it works. Okay, okay. If you're God, then uh, make it snow in here. You know what? I really don't want to make it snow in here because it'd get kind of yucky.
2: Yeah, you're not God.
3: Why do you say that?
2: God wouldn't say yucky.
3: I do. It's a Greek word. Oh.
2: Okay, okay. Um, If you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say?
3: Lamentations is only five chapters. It's a very short book. Oh. Why was it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Oh.
2: Okay, okay. If you're God, who's going to win the World Series this year?
3: I'm really not into playing games. Why are you so much into playing games? You are God. Well, gave it away.
2: You answered my question with a question.
3: I did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do that. Don't I? I did it again. <laughs> Step right up. Here we go. Okay. All right. Hey, what are we doing? I'm going to make you my original masterpiece. This is the process. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. We wait. wait. What are these about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. OK. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Step right up. Here we go. OK. Oh, hey, God. Mm-hmm. How do you know
2: what to chisel away and what to leave? But you chisel away. Just be prepared.
3: You have listened to so many voices for far too long that were not from me. And you have totally bought into the lie, haven't you? You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night after you've done the dance to get the hug, you think you're junk. Listen to me. I don't take time to make junk.
2: It's God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so are you. God doesn't make junk. You are an original masterpiece.
0: It's a, um, a powerful video my wife and I like to share because of one of the things that it emphasizes. It emphasizes God's process of getting rid of the things in us that don't belong. A lot of those things, um, as we talked about yesterday, we didn't have anything to do with. We inherited them. Then there are other things that we have cultivated. Cultivated we have worked hard at developing, and um, the process of perfecting us, getting us to the point where we reflect um, the image of God is, is a, uh, <laughs> it's joyous at the end, of course, but it is painful while it is going on. And so I um, want to talk to you just briefly here about a couple of biblical examples of how God used negative experiences, bad experiences, to mold and shape some of his people. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, you want to read that?
1: Yes, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And every one that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them and there were with him about 400 men.
0: All right, so how would you like to be David? David is anointed as king when he's probably still a a young man and we know he slew Goliath probably when he was about 16 or 17 years of age. He is anointed as king when he's a young man. But according to what we read in the scriptures, David was a fugitive on the run from King Saul for approximately 15 years. So you're anointed as king, and then for over 10 years, you are on the run from the person who has lost the spirit of God and that individual is trying to kill you. This is an, uh, this is an amazing experience. And most of us could not last through this. But I want to, to read what, um, what the pen of inspiration has to say about this time. It says, the experience through which David was passing was not, what does that word say? Question. You don't even have to answer this right now. Are there things that you have experienced in your life that you feel are unnecessary? And maybe you've talked to God like, come on God, we can really take a detour right now. We do not need to go down this road, all right? But nothing that God allows his children to experience is unnecessary. The experience through which David was passing was not unnecessary or fruitless. God was giving him a course of, what does that next word say? A course of discipline to fit him to become a wise general as well as a just and merciful king. So what God was allowing David to pass through was actually God's way of chiseling David, as it were, or fitting David to be the type of king, the type of ruler that God would have him to be. Question. If David doesn't know any of God's ultimate plan for his life and whatnot, does David choose to be on the run for 15 years? You you can answer. Yes or no? No. Who would choose to live (laughs) on the run run for 15 years? Here's the thing. We know this because later on in David's life, when David numbered the people, God gave David an opportunity to choose his discipline. And one of the choices was that he would be on the run, he would be a fugitive. Now, if you study closely the life of David, you know that he just came out of being a fugitive when his son Absalom had, uh, 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 you know, worked a coup d'etat and he had pursued David. So David didn't choose to flee again. Why? Because that had been the road of his life. He would do anything to get away from that, okay? So David doesn't like being a fugitive, He wouldn't choose that. Neither would any of us choose it for ourselves. But remember this, it was not unnecessary. So if it's not unnecessary, that means it's it's necessary. And it was also fruit. The opposite of fruitless is fruit, fruitful. So this was necessary and it was for the purpose of bringing forth fruit in the life of David, even though it was unnecessary desirable now a uh another story in fact why don't you well i'll I'll read it for you i don't know if i'll put it up there but it's in genesis chapter 45 genesis chapter 45 And everybody knows, bless you, the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 45, then Joseph, you there? This is the favorite part of the story that everybody likes. If I'm honest, I don't like the other parts of the story. But this is the part I like, right? But then I wouldn't really like this if there weren't for the other parts as well. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all of them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me. I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. It's like, yeah, bro, that's, that's why we're not coming close to you. <laughs> Verse 5, now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Man, that's powerful right there. Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Why? For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now this is, this is the kicker. So now it was not It was not, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but, and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Man, some of the most potent truths in all of scripture. Joseph saw something in the gross mistreatment of his brothers. He saw the providence of God and he saw that the treatment his brothers had heaped upon him was, in the words of patriarchs and prophets, it was necessary for him to be where he was. And it was fruitful. Man. So Joseph sees in this mistreatment and in this cruelty He sees the providential leading of God. He sees the hand of God and he sees this treatment being used to shape him, mold him, to chisel him into the man that God would have him to be.
1: Now it says here, what was the cause what was the cause of Joseph's brother's feeling about him? Because he didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to despise my family right none of us is born into the world with the thought that we are going to have ill will or ill thoughts right towards those that are supposed to love us if you turn to genesis chapter 37 verses 1 through 11 it gives you a little bit of a breakdown there and i'll read it for you in your hearing genesis chapter 37 verses 1 through 11 and it says and jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of canaan these are the generations of Jacob Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children.
0: So why did Joseph's brothers feel the way they did about him? Come on, say it. Favoritism. He showed favoritism. Right? Mm -hmm. His father favored him above all the rest of his brothers. We're merely saying that to say that this was not a situation that Joseph created himself. Neither was David's situation one of his own making or choosing. These were situations that were created by powers that were beyond or outside their control.
1: And the interesting thing about that story is Oftentimes when we look at those brothers and we see how evil they were towards their their brother, right? We would automatically think, you know what, these guys are just horrible. But they were also victims of their circumstance, right? They were experiencing the feelings and the emotions of seeing someone that is in the same family being treated differently than them. So everyone in that scenario was a victim. And it's hard to say that when you look at the person who may be hurting you as a victim. But as he, as my husband said earlier, it takes maturity and growth to get to a place in your life where instead of looking at the people who have hurt you as enemies, to get to a point where you really see the hurt and the pain in their own lives um, and really begin to pray for them, you know.
0: And over and above that, seeing the providential hand of God and using even painful experiences and hurtful people Mm -hmm. as um, tools to help him to shape us into the individuals that he would Have us to be. So, um, why are we talking about this? Um, Let me let me first put this little caveat in. The Bible the Bible does something on numerous occasions. The scriptures give us the end result, and they don't always go into deep detail in terms of the process, right? So we see Joseph forgiving his brothers, and we're like, yeah. I want to do that but the scriptures don't you know it's not as though Joseph when he was sold as a slave he was like yes this is all a part of God's marvelous plan for my life then he's working for Potiphar and his wife uh, falsely accuses him of rape and he's thrown into Pharaoh's dungeon yes I'm one step closer to God's will being fulfilled in my life no that's not how it was happening I'm sure he was, he experienced things like anger, fear, frustration, et cetera, et cetera. But the Bible gives us the end result. That's where we want to be. We want to be at the place where we can say, um, <laughs> be not angry nor, oh, Lord have mercy. Be not angry or grieved at yourself. Can you imagine, just think of somebody who's hurt you in your life. Can you imagine speaking those words? Be not angry nor grieved at yourself. God used you, even though you didn't know it, to bring me to where I am. Now, in order for us to get from where we are to there, it's going to take a lot of work. And uh, this is imperative for our um, healthy, or in order for us to have healthy and mature relationships in marriage, relationships with our parents, with our siblings family members, church members, members of our community. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So um, we want to, uh, and I may have underestimated, but maybe not, but we want to share with you um, a, um, an activity. How many of you have something to write with? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right, all right, good, good. So maybe we'll have enough. So hopefully, and and if we don't have enough, then we'll get some more for some of you later. But this is a, um, this is um, uh, an activity that my wife and I got out out of a, a book called The DNA of Relationships. And it helps with identifying your, for fear, and um, we suggested on yesterday that there are things that happen instantly, right, when we come to the Lord, and there are things that are more process-driven. So it's gonna take the remainder of your life. Uh, Two theological words, justification, the work of a moment, sanctification, the work of a lifetime. So what we're talking about right now is something that is in the realm of sanctification. It deals with the process that, uh, that the Lord takes us through. And this has been a, a tremendous help. We'll explain how it has helped us um, here after you get an opportunity to get, get a copy in your hand and we try to work with that. So um, there's one, hopefully we'll be able to have another one. And if you, if you don't get one, then I'll get one for you later. But just look on with someone close and you can go through. Does that, who who, who doesn't have one? one, Oh, Lord have mercy. Oh man, praise God, praise God. All right, so um, take, take, take a look and it asks you to, identify a recent conflict argument or negative situation with your spouse a friend a child neighbor co-worker or whomever something that really pushed your buttons or upset you think about how you were feeling and how you wish the person would not say or do the things that upset you you might have thought something like if only you would stop saying or doing x then i would not be so upset so everybody think about that now the next thing that it asks you to do is to identify your feelings. How did this conflict or negative situation make you feel? Did it make you feel unsure? Did it make you feel apathetic, puzzled, upset, sullen, sad, hurt, disappointed, weary, torn up, shamed, uncomfortable, confused, worried, disgusted, resentful, bitter, fed up, frustrated, miserable, guilty, embarrassed, frightened, anxious, horrified, disturbed, or something that is not listed. And you can
1: mark as many as apply to. Yes. There is no limit.
0: And what's that? Torn up, torn up. Yeah, that's supposed to be torn up. So, um, and, and we're just looking at one situation right now. Now, after you've checked all of those that apply, Next, it asks to identify your fear. How did this conflict make you feel about yourself? What did the conflict say about you and your feelings? Check all that apply, but star the most important feelings. This is extremely important. You can check the ones that apply again, but um, star the three that you feel most applied. Did you feel um, rejected? And then it gives you a short explanation, like the other person doesn't want me or need me. I am not necessary in this relationship. I feel unwanted. You feel abandoned. The other person is gonna ultimately leave me and I will be left alone to care for myself. The other person won't be committed to me for life. It'll cause you to feel disconnected and you, you get the point. You can go down and check the ones that apply in this conflict that you had. And then, um, you can star the ones that most apply. I'll read a few more on, on, the, the, on the back. Um, invalidated, who I am, what I think, what I do, or how I feel is not valued. Unloved, the other person doesn't care about me. My relationship doesn't have warm attachment, admiration, enthusiasm, or devotion dissatisfied I won't experience satisfaction in this relationship I will not feel joy or excitement about the relationship did you feel cheated the other person will take advantage of me or will withhold something I need and I won't get what I desire from the relationship worthless I am useless I have no value to the other person unaccepted I am never able to meet the other person's expectations and I'm not good enough judged I'm always being unfairly judged the other person forms faulty or negative opinions about me I'm always being evaluated the other person does not approve of me Humiliated. the relationship is extremely destructive to my self-respect or dignity so as you complete that and remember you are starring the three that most um identify the way you felt after this conflict then the next section it asks you to identify your reactions so when I when when I feel this way this is how I respond the first one is withdrawal you avoid others or alienate yourself without resolution you sulk or you use the silent treatment this is one of my favorites I mean I'm not saying it's like <laughs> my favorite like favorite but I'm saying that I often do this. I often do this. So if my wife, um, if something that my wife does pushes one of my buttons, then one of my, uh, uh, you know, tried and true responses is to withdraw. So I won't talk to her. Is everything all right? Mm Mm-hmm. You sure? Mm Mm-hmm. You wanna talk? Mm Mm-mm. Right? So you can withdraw and still be in the person's presence or you can withdraw by leaving the person's presence. Oh, I I got so much work to do. See ya later. Hey, can we pray? No, 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 I gotta go. I gotta, (laughs) so there are several forms of withdrawing. Go ahead.
1: And the funny thing is as we go through this, you're gonna see some really interesting things because in relationships, this shows up in a funny dynamic because I also have um, some core fears that play off of off of that and we're going to read them and you're going to see and we'll
0: talk about that a little bit. All right, the next is Escalation. Try harder. You try to do more to earn the other's love and care. Negative beliefs. You believe the other person is far worse than is really the case. Now all of us really suffer from that, right? Mm-hmm. You're thinking about someone who's made you angry and you're only thinking about the negative things that they have done to you at that point. You know, when I get angry at my wife, she can be the worst thing on planet earth. Never mind that she just, you know, uh, 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 cooked me a wonderful meal and, you know, we had a fabulous time together. I'm only now thinking in the negative. Blaming. You place responsibility on others, not accepting fault. You're convinced the problem is the other person's fault. Exaggeration. You make overstatements or enlarge your words beyond bounds or the truth. And then tantrums. You have fits of bad temper. And don't be ashamed to tell us that, got, that you still have temper tantrums. Adults can have temper tantrums too. Denial. You refuse to admit the truth or reality. Invalidation. You devalue the other person. You do not appreciate what he or she feels or thinks or does. Defensiveness. Woo, have mercy. Instead of listening, you defend yourself by providing an Explanation. No, 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 no. See, you don't understand. I only did that because clinginess. You develop a strong emotional attachment or dependence on the other person. Passive aggressive. Ooh, help us, Holy Ghost. (laughs) Passive aggressive. You display negative emotions, resentment, and aggression in passive ways such as procrastination and stubbornness. Man, I think 99.9% of the population suffers from some form of passive aggressiveness. All right, so all of these are the different, um, uh, the different responses. Now, after you've done that, you need to go on the back side of your last page or your second page, and it asks you to do something. Look at the items under number five. Look at the items you starred in response to question three. List the three or four main Feelings and these are your core fears List the three or four main feelings. I want to show you how How expansive this is and why we are told that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. You're only looking at one negative experience right now just one and potentially you could have several core fears that are revealed just by this one negative experience so imagine if you were to take all of the negative experiences in your life and you were to consider how those things made you feel you'd be dealing with a lot of stuff right now under number um, number six it says look at the items you start in response to question four these are your responses list your three or four main reactions when someone pushes your core fear button. All right. So what I'm going to do now is give you an example of how this what we're going to do is give you an example of how this plays out in um, in our marriage and in our relationship. So I'm a person who just I I tend to be big on physical touch. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way that I, you know, um, I experience that someone loves me or cares for me. My wife is not that person. You know, and I know ooh. people think
1: I am because I hug a lot,
0: right? Yeah, but she doesn't hug me a lot, right? <laughs> Great. It's wonderful how we, miraculous how we found each other, right? So, um, you know, if, if, if I want to, hey, you know, and I'm all feely touchy, oh, yeah, and my wife is like, eh, then one of my core fears is rejection. I'm like, oh. Did I? I mean, what's going on? (laughs) What's going on here? And so as I'm dealing with this core fear button, now what happens is I begin to project on her. Why is she treating me like this? I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I haven't done anything wrong. And yet she refuses to give me the affection that I need. And so... Because of that, she'll come and say, "Hey, do you want to go to the store with me?" There's no response because I'm pretending I didn't hear her. This is how I'm when beginning. He this is how I'm beginning to withdraw. <laughs> you want to go to the store? I busy myself. Hey, did you hear me? Do you oh, 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 what? Huh? Oh no, no, no! I'm I'm busy doing some stuff right here. Can you, uh, okay, well, can you watch the kids? No, no, I'm not going to be able to watch the kids. Because even though I'm busy right now, then I'm going to have to be leaving to go and involve myself in something. I don't say it like that, but no, I have an appointment that I need to go to, and blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing it verbally. I'm doing it emotionally. And ultimately, I'll do it physically as well. Now, when I withdraw, what happens?
1: so as he withdraws then that begins to press upon one of my fears and one of my fears is abandonment so if he doesn't talk to me or if he leaves abruptly or if he's gone and then i begin to feel as though okay is he leaving? Oh, my goodness. And, and see, I got to give you a little bit of background because this is very important. And remember, we were talking about yesterday, for those of you who weren't here, we were talking about baggage, right? Because we all come into this world with the baggage of being born into sin, right? Then the different experiences we have in the womb or in the families we've grown up in, I come from a background of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, all of those different things. And so um, one of those fears that I have, of course, is abandonment because I felt that a lot as a child. And so it's funny, I didn't think about that when I got married, like, oh my goodness, I have the fear of abandonment. Let me, you know, it doesn't pop into your mind. Let me get
0: with a guy who has the fear of rejection
1: and who withdraws when he... (laughs) And so here we are as adults making a decision that we feel like, man, this is great, we're going to be together. But what we don't realize until we begin to have the relationship and begin to be together that, oh, wow he has a particular rejection issue and I have an abandonment issue. And when those two things begin to collide, they make for a soup of mess.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so here she is with her abandonment things. Now, you know, when I go out, the Holy Spirit speaks to me, get your tail back. Oh, okay, Lord, I'm going back. You know? I'll go to the store with her. I'm sorry, Father. I just... And I come back in. Hey, Tamara, did you go to the store yet? Tamara. Tamara? Tamara? Do you still need me to go to the store?
1: Mm -mm, I don't need you for anything.
0: Now she's withdrawing. See what's happening? Right. So when when she she withdraws and now I've just talked with God and I'm making an effort now to re-engage and reconnect but my wife is withdrawing then it goes back and pushes my rejection, my core fear. Like, okay, God, you just set me up for this, didn't you? I do not like the way this is going. And so uh, then other responses or other reactions, yeah. negative beliefs, you know, my wife doesn't love me, yeah. you know, Oh, she, when you were the one who walked out when she was trying to, but no, 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 no. My wife, it's her fault. She doesn't love me. She, she, she has problems. She has this, that, and the other negative beliefs. It can be, or a try harder person, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to break her down Make them. Yeah. and I'm going to just get her to whatever the case may be. So all of these are responses. And what what it does is it creates a cyclical Mm. experience in our relationship, right? And there are many families, couples, people in church, it it goes all the way across the spectrum, who experience the cyclical nature of what we're talking about. My buttons are pushed, Mm. I respond, my response pushes her button, she responds, which in turn Ignites me again, and we're on a merry-go-round of experience, and no one is willing to step off.
1: And the thing about this merry-go-round is this: not everyone knows that this is the thing that they're on. No one, no one even knows they're on the ride. They just see this happening, and they get frustrated, they get angry, they get confused. Unreconcilable differences—you heard about that when it comes to divorce. That's all that that really means is that we cannot, we have not gotten to the point where we identify. What is it that's really causing the issues and the problems in our relationship? And this isn't just about men and women. This is about between our parents. You ever experienced that between a mom and a dad, or you know, I'm trying to communicate to them and they're trying to communicate to me, and then we argue and we fuss, and it it can happen anywhere
0: Mm -hmm. in any Mm -hmm. relationship. And you know, these, as she said, they go up and down. Now, now listen, everyone is not—I'm going to use this word again—everyone is not mature enough. Mm to be able to, or in the process of sanctification, where he or she is mature enough to be able to deal with some of these issues. Here's the, here's the beautiful thing about the concept that we're trying to share with you today is this. The gospel speaks. If you look at that list, I want you to keep that with you. The gospel speaks to every one of those core fears. Everyone, right? So, so what God does, because the gospel speaks to every one of our core fears, what God is doing is he's removing the responsibility for my core fear from the other individual and now he's putting it on me. So how does this work? If I am trying to get a hug from my wife and my wife is like, "I oh, know I've been working all day and I've been, I'm sweaty and this, that, and the other, and instantly that core fear of rejection kicks in my tendency my natural tendency is to blame my wife what is wrong with her that she does not want to love me in a way that is meaningful but here's what happens when the spirit of God comes in when the spirit of God comes in when I feel that emotion I say you know what this is not my wife God, she does love me. And furthermore, you promised me, you promised me that you would never leave me and you would never forsake me. So either I can surrender to my feelings or my fears of rejection, or I can surrender to the promise of God's word. That's why I say this is a process and it's a sanctifying process. And this takes place. Now, this is just one interaction between my wife and I. How many times does this take place if you if, if you've ever been on a church board and you're sitting in a board meeting <laughs> and you have the greatest idea I mean you've been praying about this thing for like three weeks waiting for the next board meeting you're like yeah you know I have an agenda item and your agenda item is is, is is on the list for that day and okay now it's your turn and you get up and you present it and people are just like we we I don't think that we have money for that I don't is that in, I know that, and people just start shooting your stuff down and you're like, oh, oh, and you, you feel invalidated, mm. you feel worthless, and then you start looking at the people around and tell you, no good and how dare <laughs> you say that? And you start going through all of these various emotions, yeah. but here's where the gospel speaks to us at our core, because the gospel says, what does the gospel say about worthlessness? Mm. We read a little yeah. bit of it. Um, yesterday from Jeremiah chapter 1 before um, I I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb not only did I know you but I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations so God says I know you intimately and furthermore he says uh, Romans chapter 5 while we were uh, while we were yet sinners Christ died for the ungodly right in this He demonstrated his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, he died for the ungodly. So God says, this is how much value you have with me. I would exchange the life of my son for you. So I'm tempted in that board meeting to feel worthless so I can surrender to my fear of worthlessness or I can surrender to what God says in his word about me. I can choose to believe what others think about me or what I may think about myself, or I can choose to accept what God says he thinks about me. You understand how that works? And it's happening, Every it happens when you're on the road, you're driving, somebody cuts you off. It happens when you're in the grocery store. It happens when you're in church. It happens when you have a spat with your family members. It's happening moment by moment. And that's why uh, it's important, number one, that we acknowledge and say, Lord, this is a challenge. We surrender it to him. And then we find the promise in his word that applies. Go ahead.
1: And the thing about this, too, is it helps you to see the humanness of everyone around you, because the fact of the matter is, as much as I love my husband, he cannot be God to me. He Mm. cannot. He is a human being. He's going to hurt me. And I know that that sounds strange, right? No one gets married and says yes. So death do us part, and I know you're gonna hurt me.
0: Yes, sweetie. I will. Yes, I, I <laughs> promise to hurt you.
1: No one does that, but just as sure as God is working out salvation in his life, he's doing the same for us both. Mm. And it's like we're all coming and what we've been talking to you all about is the relationships that God puts us in. I say God because I believe that God put us together. There are some of us who force relationships because we think that the other person is going to solve all of our problems. Lord have mercy. Because those relationships end up being a hot mess, flaming mess, right? But when you are in a godly relationship, you are still a mess, praise God, but it is a godly mess. And what I mean by that is when God is in control, he's refining you and he's making you a better person. You are growing moment by moment, year after year. You get to a point where you can, you can submit to one another in love and say, you know what? I apologize. I apologize if I hurt you, or I'm beginning to understand you. When you do these types of things and you begin to understand your spouse and you say, man, you know what? I now realize that this is a need of his. Whereas before I'm like, Phew. he needs to get over it. No, you know, you, when you recognize that this is something that he needs, then you begin to pray and say, God help me to be able to, to supply his need as much as I earthly can, right? Mm-hmm. And where I cannot, God, I need you to step in, mm-hmm. you know?
0: And help me to stop thinking, well, what has he done for me lately? Right. <laughs> Now, and this is important because, listen, as Christians, we are called to love one another. Mm -hmm. And we're even called to love our enemies. And that's going to mean that we are wounded, which is the reason why we looked at all of those scenarios earlier. The relationship Saul had with David, the relationship Joseph had with his brothers. And we wanted to emphasize that even In relationships where we are hurt and we are wounded, God can use those things in order to grow us and in order to mature us. In fact, in fact, this is what I'll say. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You all know this. The Bible says, He suffered thee to hunger, but that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Question, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, who was leading them? God. When they got hungry, that was in the process of God leading them. Yes or no? Let me suggest something to you. If you love God and you want to be like him, God will lead you and I into experiences that push our buttons to reveal things that are in us that we did not know existed. I'm telling you, I was ready for translation before I got married. I was like, Enoch, bro, I'm coming to join you. Elijah, I'm on my way. Then I got married and I'm like, Lord, what has this woman done to me? But in reality the pressures of this relationship revealed things that already existed but i was unaware of them and god through this relationship was leading me to see those things so that i could surrender them to him so back back to the point i was making god is going to lead each one of us if you say you want to be like him you say you want to be like jesus it means that he's going to lead us into relationships and experiences that are, that where their primary function is to reveal our weaknesses, our deficiencies, and ultimately our need of him.
1: And at the end of the day, a true Christian cannot be an isolationist. Mm-hmm. You cannot. It will never work. That is not the way that God intended it to be. He created us to be able to help one another become more <laughs> like him, mm-hmm. period.
0: Now, I know some of us, that's why we want to move to the country. <laughs> Nobody said amen. You want to move to the country so you can be, you can be, a, you can be away from people, and you're like, oh, Jesus, yes. You just just you get away and from I. them, I'll be Go right. out in nature, hear the birds sing, and God going to send the squirrels to Ooh. eat up all your little garden. Oh, Next thing you know, you're going to be running around trying to <laughs> squirrels. God is like, look, it's not the people. It's not the squirrels. It's who? It's you. It's you. And so God is going to God is going to bring us um, into relationships that are Mm tailor-made to reveal our weaknesses. Somebody said there, the Bible contains 365 fear Mm knots, one for every day. So for each and every one of these core fears, friends, God's word has an answer. And he speaks directly. And this is, to me, this is extremely powerful. He speaks directly to the core of who we are. Not just, he doesn't just speak to my behaviors, right? But in this sanctification process, he gets underneath my behaviors and he gets to the root of why I respond the way I do. Isn't that what John the Baptist preached? He said, the axe is laid to the root. See, many of us are into the you know tree trimming business. We're like, oh, let me stop a little bit of this and yeah, let me snip a little bit of that, and God is saying, "No, that's not good enough. I want to get to the root. So I want to reveal to you the motives behind what you're doing. And once I reveal that to you, I want you to surrender there, not just on the surface, but at the root level. At the root level. That makes sense to you? All right. So want to um want to end want to end with with uh, with this. And I, just, to, just to let you know how, um, first of all, how good God is, and second of all, how things that happen to us in life, even though it may only be one instance, how powerful it can be. I think I was about five years old, and I had a crush on a little girl. I didn't even know what a crush was. I just thought she was cute. So my older cousin took advantage of me, right? Lord Bless him. But he took advantage of me. And I remember my older cousin and my brother, they walked me down the street. And this little girl was hanging out of the one she had. little. Anybody ever seen Little House on the Prairie? She had like the Laura Ingalls, you know, little long hair. And little. they used to wrap it up in bowls and whatnot. And, and uh, they started talking. they like, hey, I can't even remember what the girl's name was. And they were like, hey, Stephen. Stephen likes you. You know what this little girl said? She looked. And I was five or six years old. She said, ugh, he's ugly. Now, from that point on in my life, I determined to prove my aesthetic worth. So I began to, uh, in my community, what we used to call it is chase women. And I did that as a form of validating myself. Now, I thought at the time I was just doing it because, hey, you know, hey, I'm just, I'm out here like, when I, was, when I was converted, it was actually before I was getting ready to propose to my wife, I'm praying, and I was so afraid, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm going through all the things that can go wrong in my mind, and the Lord revealed to me while I was there in prayer that it is this fear that has dominated the majority of your unconverted life. It's that fear, it's what was driving you while you were in an endless effort to get more girls' phone numbers and get more, oh, this is my girlfriend and this, that, and the other. In fact, it's the reason why you had all of these girlfriends because you were afraid that if one, if you only had one and they kicked you to the curb, it would break your little heart. So you had to insulate yourself from being hurt. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And I was like, So you mean it wasn't? Because I was a macho man and because I was. God is like, No. It's because you're afraid. You're afraid, just like you are right now. You're afraid to ask this wonderful woman that I brought into your life. You're afraid to ask for her hand in marriage because you're afraid she'll say no, or you're afraid that she'll find out who you really are. That core fear from the time I was five or six dominated my life till I was 18 years old and I didn't even know it. So do we need God's grace? Yes, we need God's grace more, I'm going to say this, more than we even realize we need his grace. And this is the process that God is graciously inviting each one of us into. The new birth doesn't settle everything. That's something that happens in a moment when we believe, except Christ says, by the simple act of believing God, the Holy Spirit has begotten in you a new life. You are as a child born into the kingdom of God. That takes place the moment we believe. But the process of God working out things that are in us that we don't even know exist takes a lifetime. Now, do you think that you should be in a rush to just marry the first person that comes into your life with all that we've talked about? My wife did a little thing when we were doing a presentation. She took a teddy bear and cut it up into like as many pieces as she could. She wrapped it in a beautiful box, put a wonderful bow on it, gave it to somebody does that look nice yeah what do you think is in it they shook it all oh, something nice looks real nice on the outside yeah yeah but when they opened it up it was in all these pieces and her point was this that's how we are we present ourselves as a nice package we look great on the outside but that's not what's most important what's most important is who am i on the inside am i pieced together Have I been placed on the potter's wheel, like Jeremiah 18 said on yesterday? Has the Lord been, is the Lord in the process of putting me back together again? Am I on the path to wholeness?
1: Just just to encourage you, it is this paper, take it with you and Mm. really do it more often. Do it a lot because... As you continue on your your process and your journey of becoming a Christian, you're going to just go through so many different things. And I'm telling you, it's going to transform the way you look at everybody around you. It's going to transform conflict in your life, at your job, at school, everything. And you're going to be able to see the needs of people more than you ever have in your life. And then you are going to be in a responsible position to pray for people, to pray for them and pray for yourselves. When God reveals to you that you have a certain fear, Go to your knees and pray and talk to God about it. You don't want to be controlled. And Satan loves, he loves to use us like puppets, right? And he'll throw things in our direction because he knows us, right? He's watched us our whole lives. And so he knows what your core fears are too. But when we surrender ourselves to our Father, I tell you what, the power that God gives you to be able to stop dead in your tracks and say, you know what, I will not be controlled Mm -hmm. by this fear Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: by the grace of God. I will be praying for those around me that God exposes these fears to, mm. to me about.
0: Well, um, sorry, we don't have any time for questions. What we'll do is on tomorrow we'll open up and, and, and you know you can ask any questions, write them down if you want to, or you can pull my wife our side and outside um, and and we'll talk to you then. But we'll close and dismiss for lunch. This media was brought to you by Audioverse